And so that's what Matthew is trying to focus on is how Jesus really does reign over everyone and over everything and what that practically looks like in his ministry and in his life. So uh, Jesus today, what Matthew will be focusing on is the king of the Gentiles. And so we'll look at that. The Gentiles are non-Jewish people, aka probably 99% of this room, I'm assuming, is would be considered Gentiles. And back before uh, Christ came, there was really this separation in a lot of ways between Yahweh God, the true God of the world, and the Gentiles because there was a feeling of separation. Jesus came to really bridge that gap. And so here's what I'm hoping today is that in a lot of ways, I think many of us, whether we would consider ourselves Christians or would consider ourselves trying to seek and figure out who Jesus is, we feel like there may be a gap or a bridge in between us and Christ and who he is or us and God. And we may feel a lack of deep intimacy deep connection, deep relationship that scripture says that we can have. I hope today that we kind of bridge that a little bit with this story, okay? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We'll be in Matthew chapter two. We'll start in verse one and we'll carry it through verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we want you to take and keep that. It's our gift to you. We want you to have the word. Uh, If you would like to follow along on your smartphone, you can on the YouVersion app underneath the events section, type in the Well Austin. You'll be able to follow along that way. There's notes, uh, uh, scripture, uh, places for you to, to jot down thoughts and things like that. If you don't have the version app, you can take this link, put it right in your browser. You can follow along that way. Uh, we say this every single week. And if you get sick of it, fill out your communication card during this time. All right. But we want your eyes on the word is what we say. We want you to whatever that means, however that looks like, phones, physical Bibles, whatever. We want you to see that we're not making this stuff up, that we really believe this is the word of God and that God's word is powerful in our lives. And so Matthew chapter 2. Uh, And we're going to just go ahead and read this whole story and then kind of chop it up together. All right. So Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, I want to go ahead and ruin some of your Christmas stories here. Is that okay? 
That seems like a good way to start off a Christmas service is to ruin some of our stories, all right? So uh, most of us uh, in any uh, way or shape or form kind of have an understanding of the wise men here in this story. Even if we didn't really grow up in church, we probably heard uh, stories or have seen uh, the little nativity scenes or in some way we kind of have a loose understanding, most likely, of the wise men here in this story, okay? Uh, Or we know songs like, we three kings of Orient are, right? All right, that's why I don't lead worship, in case you were wondering, okay? Um, But so we have this understanding, this idea, all right? But I kind of want to shatter some of our pictures here just because I like doing stuff like that. Is that okay? All right, who's like, yeah, I would love to have my picture shattered. Okay, first of all, uh, these are not kings, okay? Nowhere in this story that you can read is there a mention of them being kings. And so that song, We Three Kings, is an incorrect song because these aren't actually kings. Instead, the scriptures uses the phrase wise men in the ESV or the Greek word there is magi, okay? So even if you have the ESV in your little, uh, at the bottom where it says or in Greek magi, Magi, right? So magi are who this man, these men are. Now, what are magi, okay? You may not know, but you probably have an assumption based on literally the sound of the word. The magi were these astrologers, these men who in some ways practiced what would be considered magic. And so they were people who looked at the stars, who tried to figure out signs and tried to work these healings or miracles based on the stars, kind of a sorcerer in some sense, okay? So they studied these things. Because of that culture, they would have been considered a higher class of society There would have been a lot of value on these magi, but they were magicians in a lot of way. And so these are who these men are. Secondly, nowhere does it mention uh, how many of them came. And so there could have been three, all right, but there could have been two or more likely there were probably about 40 of them because these men frequently traveled around different places and they would visit people who they would consider to be kings. And so the reason we get three is that they offered three gifts, but we don't even know how much of the gift they offered. Maybe each man offered some gold and frankincense and myrrh, or maybe there were other gifts that weren't mentioned and Matthew mentioned these on purpose, which I believe, which we'll get to later, but nowhere does it say three. So there may not be three and they're definitely not kings. Kings, okay. Uh, the other thing is, where did they visit the baby Jesus? Most people would say in the manger, but that's also not in this story, okay? It says that they went and they visited him in Mary's house. In fact, we're pretty certain that he's not a baby because they use the Greek word child there instead of baby or infant. And in the next week's story, Herod goes and kills all the boys that are under two. And so we can assume that Jesus is actually somewhere between one and two when this is being written. So just to kind of reorient our brains, all of the plays and the cute little stories you've seen, they're all wrong, all right? But that's okay, all right? Not that you shouldn't listen to We Three Kings, it's still an okay song. But I do want to kind of reshape our picture because here's what we do. We enter into a text like this thinking that we kind of already know what's here. But even some of the small details are off in some ways. And so now that I've ruined all your Christmas plays, just by curiosity, did anybody ever do a Christmas play? And were you the wise man in the Christmas play? Anybody? 
All right, good. I was going to, oh, wait, somebody raised their hand. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, well, that was wrong, right? <laughs> but we are going to hopefully reconstruct, all right, in some ways what exactly was going on here. So um, firstly, let me tell you one reason kind of before uh, we even dive into our text uh, that we can get out of this story. One thing that we should think about is if you have a hard time believing in the Bible, all right, if you have a hard time believing that this is the word of God, that, uh, that it should be followed, that it should be think about, thought about in high reverence, then stories like this should actually give you great confidence that the word of God is actually true and that these are indeed the inspired words of God himself. Now, you may ask off of kind of first glance, well, why would that be? Because if Matthew wanted to convince his audience of Jesus actually being God, then he made a really, really bad play by adding this story into his text. Now, it may not immediately jump off as to why to us, but Matthew definitely did not help his case in trying to convince people that Jesus was indeed God, Messiah, Christ, Savior. Like, he actually kind of hurt his case in some ways. Week one, we looked at how Jesus included a bunch of gender outcasts or women, a bunch of moral outcasts, a lot of sexually immoral women at that, and a lot of racial outcasts, the Gentiles, in Jesus's genealogy. He's mentioning this to the Jews who were obsessed in a lot of ways with keeping the law. They desired to follow it to perfection. And so the fact that uh, Matthew includes in the person that he's calling the Messiah, a bunch of outcasts would have immediately kind of drawn at least a yellow flag in a lot of Jewish readers' minds. Even though they knew that, the fact that Matthew is not only highlighting, but to some extent celebrating that, that would have created great concern for the Jews. This would have been an assured red flag waving hardcore before the Jewish people's faces because that Greek word magi is mentioned many, many other times in scripture. And every single other time that it's mentioned, it's mentioned not just negatively, extremely negatively. In fact, it would tell the Jewish people to stone people that are like this. That's how negative the Jewish audience would have seen the Magi because they are people who practice magic. They are people who do things like look at horoscopes. They are sorcerers in a lot of ways. Therefore, they do not depend on God for their wisdom or their knowledge. And so the Jews would have utterly rejected this. So the fact that Matthew adds this into the story as he's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is king, it must only mean one thing. It must have happened. Like, like there's no other reason to add this in. To fabricate something like this makes no sense because it does not convince the people. It kind of actually hurts Matthew's case in some ways that Jesus is who he says he is. And so the fact that Matthew added it in must have meant that it happened and it must have meant that Matthew, who was a Jew himself and understood the ramifications of adding a story like this in, it must have meant that Matthew was being led by the Holy Spirit to add this in for some reason and the reason, which we'll get to in a second, is a very, very beautiful reason. It's a beautiful story. It highlights crazy things about our God and who he is, but it must have happened. And so 
you can, as a reader today, even though you don't fully understand that culture or how bad that would have been, okay, you can understand that scripture was very likely not doctored to fit the context of the people they were trying to convince or altered in any way, that they must have left what actually happened in there as it did because this is not a story that would convince the normal Jewish reader, unless, of course, it truly happened, and unless God is trying to speak something into this context, into what's going on. Think about it like this. When you are trying to sell something, like say that you're trying to sell something on Craigslist, or maybe that's your job. You're like a real estate agent or a salesperson. You don't like hop on the phone with somebody or go to the house and say, now, you know, you, you probably really don't need this. In fact, here are the nine things that are wrong with it. There's this foundation issue. You're not going to see it, but I know about it. And it's going to cost you $37,000 in about a year. <laughs> right? Like, that's not what you do, okay? You kind of hide the bad things because you're only trying to paint the good things because you want people to buy it. Matthew's trying to get us to buy that Jesus is the Messiah and the King, but he's also not hiding the bad things. He's also not hiding the things that would seem on the surface to be something uh, off or, or bad or that would uh, unconvince us of who Jesus is. He leaves them in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I mean, for Luke to write a story like this, that makes sense. Luke is a Gentile trying to convince Gentiles, but for Matthew to do it, it must have been God inspiring him. So I know it's a long point and it's not even a point of the text, but I really do want to uh, just emphasize that scripture is real in a lot of ways and it doesn't hide the imperfections of people and it doesn't hide different things that would originally kind of shock us. It's trying to lay out what exactly happened so that we can see who God is. It's a historical, accurate, truthful thing. It's trying to create history for us to see this actually happened, but it's also theological in nature. It's trying to show us why these things are important. It doesn't just leave out the bad, okay? So it must have happened. And in light of that, point one of our text is that Matthew, uh, because he has no reason to include this unless God is working through him, it must mean that Gentiles or those uh, immoral or social outcasts, people who had no place in religion, the Gentiles are included in the worship of Jesus. That's what this story tells us. These are Gentile people, they are non-Jews, and they are included in the worshiping of Jesus. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 11, if you have your Bible there still, you see that it purposely uses the term worship, right? They came and they worshiped Jesus. God must have been doing something in their hearts because, you know, it could have said that they acknowledged him or they revered him or they honored him, but no, Scripture says that they worshiped Jesus, and so Gentiles are now included in the worship of Jesus. You may say, wait, wasn't that the same point from two weeks ago? Yes, it was. And I'm just kidding. None of y'all remember that point from two weeks ago, <laughs> all right? Well, that's okay. I'm not mad at that, right? But in a lot of ways, right, the week one that we said, the Gentiles, the morally outcast, those were normally people of the lower society, if you will, the lower socioeconomic threshold. And so they were truly invited into the worship of Jesus. Think in Luke's story of the shepherds who would have been a little bit lower in that culture, in that class. They were welcomed into the worship of Jesus. 
these would be kind of the higher society, the higher class, the engineers, the wealthy people, the people who seem to kind of have it all together. Well, they're welcomed into the worship of Jesus too. Doctors, lawyers, or janitors, carpenters, whatever it may be, both can enter into the kingdom of God, even if they are Gentiles, they don't have to have it all together. Put it like this, he was the king of the world, including the Gentiles. He was the king of the Gentiles, and they offered him kingly gifts and worshiped him as such. The Gentiles, the outcasts, the down and out could now come and worship their king, King Jesus. So maybe uh, you don't connect with the uh, Jesus saves the broken and lowly narrative because maybe in your life, you're not necessarily broken and lowly. You kind of have things together. You have a house or you have a job or you have things going on. You're not depressed. You're not broken, whatever it may be. Now, part of the reason why we don't connect with that is that we don't see how broken and lowly our sin makes us. So we don't see how actually low we really are when it comes to where we should be, where God has created us to be, and where sin has actually brought us down. So in a lot of ways, we don't connect with that because we miss the point and the ramification of sin. But maybe you do have it together in some ways, at least from a worldly perspective. Maybe things are going okay. Maybe, maybe there is reason to kind of take joy and satisfaction because like Solomon and Ecclesiastes, you have it together. You kind of have what you want, but he can still be the king that you need and he is still the king that you want. Even if your heart doesn't fully see that, which hopefully we'll get to in a second, Jesus is the king, not just of the lowly broken people to build them up, but also of the people who kind of have it all together like these men would have. You see the gifts that they offer him, gold, the most valuable resource then. These are wealthy people, yet they come and they acknowledge that Jesus is their king. So Jesus saves even the Gentiles, even of a higher class or a higher society, even when it seems like they don't need a king in a lot of ways. It seems like they don't necessarily need one, but he's there for them. He's the one that they want, which we'll see in a second. Okay? Jesus comes to bring life to all, the low, the high, the immoral, the moral, the Gentile, the Jew, wherever we may be at, Jesus gives life to all. Okay? Now, point two is that the Jews or the religious people who were upright, who kind of got it, they were actually slow to get it. And in a lot of ways, they excluded themselves from the worship of Jesus. It wasn't that the Jews were now excluded from worshiping Jesus. It's that they excluded themselves. They cast themselves out. They didn't come in because notice in verse five, it wasn't that the star kind of hovered right over the house where Jesus was and in comes the three wise men to worship him, they had to ask where Jesus was going to be born. So they're astrologers. They see the star. Oh, a king must have been born. And then they go to Jerusalem and they say, hey, where is the king of the Jews? And in verse five, the Jews know where he is. They know where he's going to be born. They know exactly what's going on. They say, hey, go over into this area. And then once they get to Bethlehem, that's when the star reappears. And that's when it's over the house. But they have to ask the Jewish people where he was in the first place. The Jews knew, but they didn't go worship Jesus. They didn't go offer him gifts. They didn't go try to figure out, is this the king of the world? Is, is, is this the Messiah that is promised? Is this the one who was to come? They were too concerned with their position or their power or their comfort or their influence or whatever it may have been that was preventing them from coming to Jesus. They were 
hesitant for some reason. And because of their hesitancy, they excluded themselves from being able to enter into a relationship with God. Let's put it like this. Pride prevents relationship. Pride prevents relationship. That's true in any relationship, right? Like if you're too proud to be humble before a friend or to have need before your spouse or to submit yourselves in some way to your children, to serve them, to elevate them, if you're too proud, you're probably not gonna have that deep connected relationship that we were designed to have. Pride prevents relationships in general, but pride for sure prevents a relationship with God because we exclude ourselves in saying, we don't really need you. We've got it. I've got this. It's, it's under control, right? And the Jews were probably thinking that. We've, we've got this. We're keeping the law. We're, we're doing the morally upright thing. We're, we're trying to be good enough ourselves. And because of that, they excluded themselves from the worship of Jesus. Now, notice, it wasn't that Jesus excluded them. In fact, all throughout Jesus' ministry, one of his favorite words is all. Because Jesus is actually a very, very, very inclusive God. He would say, all who would come to me, come. If you are weary, heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. All who would follow me, anyone who would pick up his cross. And over and over again, he invites the masses, everybody to come follow him. And so Jesus isn't exclusive. In a lot of ways, he's inclusive. He wants everyone to come into relationship with him, but we can exclude ourselves. We can exclude ourselves and we can prevent uh, ourselves from really seeing who Jesus is and therefore miss salvation and miss the Messiah just like the Jews did here. Those who feel unworthy, those who don't feel like they have enough, they usually came to Jesus humbly and said, welcome me in, would you save me? But those who thought they had it all together, it wasn't that Jesus excluded them, they excluded themselves. And I think a lot of us can be in that position as we try to have it all together, as we try to do it ourselves, we can accidentally exclude ourselves from a relationship with the God of the universe, thinking that we have it all together, thinking that we have what it takes. So there are two things that I think prevent us from coming into a deep relationship with Jesus. One of them is our pride. We think we have it all together. We think that we have things figured out. And in a lot of ways, we just tackled that and we will a little bit more. But I think another thing that prevents us from coming into intimacy with Jesus is fear. There's this fear that prevents us from coming close to God because we believe that maybe we have to have it all together or maybe he's not as good as he says he is or what if he asked me to change something that I don't really like or, or what if he's not as good as I say that he is and so pride and fear tend to be the two things that keep us from intimacy with Jesus. Now, Matthew does, to some extent, cater to the Jewish audience here. Even though he's showing them, you guys are missing your Messiah in your pride, though you know the scriptures, and I'm trying to show you that he fulfilled the scriptures, you're not allowing your pride to enter you in. He does still cater to them because he keeps quoting the scriptures to them to show Jesus is the king they were waiting for. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. So last week we looked at how Jesus was born and how that was a fulfillment of prophecy in a lot of ways. That's what chapter one tells us, right? Here's how he was born, mainly the virgin conception, and this is how he fulfills prophecies. Chapter two tells us about where he was born and how that also fulfills the scriptures for us. Even though Jesus didn't come to the Jewish nation how they expected him to, he was proving over and over again that he was true. They weren't looking for a child. They were looking for a military ruler. 
not a one-year-old. And so they missed him because of that. They missed their true king. They wanted the king how they thought he should be. They wanted him how they thought he should act. They wanted them how they thought that he should behave and, and kind of present himself. And so they missed Jesus in light of that. And so even though Jesus isn't always what we expect or maybe even what we desire, if we really look at the scriptures, there's no denying that he is indeed who the scriptures proclaimed him to be. Jesus is, in fact, the king of the world. He is, in fact, the Messiah. He is, in fact, the true historical Christ that has come into the world to satisfy every single thing that we can't satisfy ourselves. Scripture makes that plain, okay? But we have to have a desire to see him for who he is, not for who we want him to be, right? They wanted a military ruler to free them from Rome. Jesus came as a child to free them from their sins, a far greater captive, a far greater ruler that would dominate them, the sin and your own self-corruption, Jesus came to free from that. Like if we actually laid out what Rome was doing and what sin was doing, we would want freedom from this every single time, but we forget, we neglect because we want Jesus the way that we want Jesus. And so we oftentimes, even today, miss him because he doesn't look the way that we want him to look. But scripture makes it plain, he is the king that we need and he is the king that we desire if we realize what his kingship brings. It's not just freedom from Rome, it's freedom from sin. There's even more prophecy being fulfilled here. In Numbers 24, 17, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. But it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Okay, this is way back in Numbers. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. There's a lot to this story, but the scepter or the king, that's Jesus, and the star that guides these men is right to his throne, to his kingship. So he has a scepter, he is a king, and there's a star that will point the wise men to him, this is written 4,000 years before Christ is on the scene, and in comes this star. And the Jewish readers would have known that when they heard this story. Furthermore, there's tons of Old Testament passages that talk about the wealth of the nations being given to King Jesus. And so if you look in Isaiah chapter 60, uh, starting in verse 5, it says, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nation shall come to you. In the next chapter there in chapter 60, verse uh, 6, but 61, sorry, verse 6, but you shall be called the priest of the Lord and they shall speak to you as the ministers of our God and you shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. So Matthew is showing us that Jesus is indeed the expected, the long-awaited Messiah. He's fulfilling all these passages. In fact, there are about 11 prophecies that Jesus fulfills just in this story alone. Like things that you could not predict, like a star is going to show you where the king is going to be born, yet in comes the star. And so here's the crazy thing, okay, within all of this, and it's one of those, there, there are often moments, there are two things. One, I'm sweating like crazy, and it's winter out, right? They have this heat on demon in here, okay? But uh, sometimes I start getting excited, and I'm like trying to contain myself, right? So you know what that means. I want to drop kick something right now. You thought I was going to say punch, didn't you? But this is good, okay? 
uh, the Magi, all right, they offered gifts to Jesus, to the child king of Jesus. As we already stated, they came and they worshiped him. But notice the phrase there, offered gifts. Every single time in the New Testament that the Greek phrase offered gifts is used, it's always used in conjunction with worship to the true God of the world. So oftentimes there are sacrifices that are made or there are uh, uh, things that are presented before the altar or there's even false worship, but it never uses the phrase offered gifts except for when it's gifts being offered to worship God. Notice that Matthew purposely uses the term offered rather than presented or honored or gave gifts to Jesus, which they could have said. He said, no, they offered gifts and it was an act of worship as we already talked about. They knew, they understood who Jesus was. The Magi, though they were far off, though they of all people should have probably been the least likely to come into a relationship with Jesus, somehow the Holy Spirit drew them in and they were in a relationship with Jesus. And so as I think about my life and I think about my story, if you knew me as 15-year-old Tori, you would have said, of all people, he will not be a pastor. He will not enter into relationship with Jesus. If Jesus saves him, then God must be real, is what you would have said, right? But Jesus brought those who were far off. My parents did not know the Lord. They weren't following Christ. My dad was abusive growing up. My mom didn't go to church from the time I was five until she came to the well a couple years ago, right? So I have no Christian influence, yet somehow God draws me into relationship with himself. At the same time, God draws those who are close. The Holy Spirit does a work in people's hearts to draw them in, even the Magi, who how in the world do they even know the scriptures to come see the king in the first place? Like, how did they know this? The Holy Spirit must be doing something, and instead of coming and saying, oh, wow, look, a king, let's give him gifts, they bowed down to a one-year-old kid, and they worshiped him. These wise men, how wise does that seem? Bowing down to a one-year-old, but they did that. Because the Holy Spirit must have been doing something in their heart to prove Jesus is who he said that he was. Even more so, so the kings may have foreshadowed something that they may not have even known they're foreshadowing. We see the three gifts that they offered. Gold was very often used to give to kings. And so you gave kings gold because it showed their power. In fact, we read Isaiah 60 verse 5, how the wealth of the nations will come to him. Look at the next verse there, verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and of Ephath, they all from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring the good news, the praises of the Lord. Another prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is the king and they're acknowledging, you are a king, here is our gold. We want to honor you as a king, but he's not just a king, but he's also a priest. Because oftentimes frankincense was used in priestly offerings. And so Jesus isn't just a king, but he's also a priest. And then it says that myrrh was given to Jesus. Well, what is myrrh? Well, we see that again in scripture. Go to John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. Jesus has died. And it says, After these things, Joseph 
of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of what? Myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You gave myrrh to a dead person. That's how you offered it. In some offerings as well, because the animal was dead, and therefore you offered myrrh with the dead animal. But Jesus is indeed a king that we should bow down to, but he's also a priest, but he's not just a priest, he's a priest who gives himself. He's not a priest who offers somebody else on the throne, he's a priest who offers himself on the throne. And so these kings, maybe not even fully understanding what they were giving to him, they gave him the very thing that Jesus came to do, to establish his kingdom and his reign for eternity, he was a king, so they gave him gold. He was our priest that came to shepherd us, to bring us into himself, but he's also the offering, the sin offering, that by his death we can be saved. Jesus is the king, not just the one who rules authoritatively, but one who lays down his life for others. And so there's the beautiful truth in the story. Jesus is the savior who wants all to come into relationship with himself, not just keep us out or not make us jump through 973 hoops to get into a relationship with him. He makes it easy, he says, believe. If you believe in me, you will be saved. You shall have a relationship with me. And in many ways, friends, Jesus is the greater magi of the story. Is he not? The magi, right, they came and they uh, offered Jesus gifts, these wise men that came from the east. No one knows where they came from. And they came and they presented. Nobody knows their origins. They offered gifts. They saw the star and they were obedient to the star. Isn't Jesus the greater wise man of the story? Jesus comes from heaven. Nobody knows his origin. Sure, he's born of Mary. It says, Cam's freaking out in the front row and I'm going to like freak out right now. (laughs) Sorry, I just called you out. (laughs) She loves this, right? This is good though, right? Jesus, right, is the greater wise man. He comes, he offers up gifts, not of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but he offers the gifts of himself. He comes from heaven where nobody knows, and he enters into our land to present himself. He is the true wise man who didn't see the star and was obedient to it. He created the star. Matthew, or Proverbs 8 says, by his what? Wisdom. By wisdom, he created the stars. He's the wise man of the story. And so Jesus here is the true, the greater magi. But notice in verse two, okay, there's one more thing in this text. In verse two, they said, where is Jesus, the king of the Jews? Notice he didn't take kingship, he was born a king. He's a king already, they say. Where is Jesus, the king? But where else is this phrase used? Only one other time in scripture, and it's also in Matthew's gospel. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Verse 35, Matthew 27, 35. And when they had crucified him, Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. 
Then they sat down and kept watch over him, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. A mistaken prophecy, maybe? I don't know. But Jesus is indeed the king that the Jews needed, but they missed him. They crucified their king. In pride, they wanted the king that they thought he should be, and so they completely missed him. And in pride, often, we want the king that we think Jesus should be, and we completely miss him. We crucify him, maybe not on a cross, but we utterly reject him out of our hearts or we get frustrated when he doesn't give us things the way that we think that he should give us things. Friends, he gave his life. He literally gave of himself. There was a far greater gift than gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was him that he gave to free us, to welcome us in. He is the king that we desire, even if we don't see it, but he's definitely not the king that we deserve. We don't deserve a king like this. See, Jesus wasn't just a king who ruled in this power. Rather, he gave himself up. Even, go back to the text real quick. Go back to the prophecy that said about him in verse 6. It says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, okay, who shall shepherd the people. Do you see that? He's a ruler, not who smashes. He's a ruler who gets smashed because he loves his sheep. He desires you to come into intimacy with him. This is why we can't allow pride to keep us out, but we also can't allow fear to keep us out because he's not a king that's going to use his power to dominate you or to ask you to do something that, that, that is bad for you. Like he's a king who already gave up his life for you because he loves you. Fear should be cast out, friends, because Jesus is not this dominant ruler. He's a ruler who lays down his life. He's king indeed, but he's king on a cross. And so here's my question for us today. If we are Christians, if we say we follow God, how can we, in many ways, do two things? One, worship him like the wise man, wise men of the story did, but also give him gifts the way the wise men did. See, Jesus does, he is honored when we give our gifts to him. And so in a lot of ways, you should ask yourself, what is God calling you to give as worship to him? It's not that he needs these gifts, friends. That's why we presented the gospel. The, the gifts that we give to Jesus don't elevate us to some higher status, but it is worship to him and he deserves to be worshiped. He was the king who was crushed for you because he loves you. He loves you, God loves you. We should want to give those gifts to him. So what is it? Our time, talent, treasure, our affections, our desires, the idols that we hold on to, the things that we're too proud to submit to him or too afraid to give to him. What is he calling you to give as an act of worship? Because he already gave himself fully for you. And friends, if we don't know the Lord today, if we're seeking, trying to figure out who God is, do you see the king do you see the king? This king is a gentle king, a humble king, a king that should be the highest thing ever yet made himself lowly so that you who should be the lowest thing ever may ascend to the throne with him, Revelation says. This is the king that we have the opportunity to have a relationship with. And so if you're seeking Jesus, how is your pride preventing you from entering in? 
What are ways that you think you're too good or have it all together or, or you're going to do it by yourself that's going to prevent or what fear is preventing you from coming in? What is there to fear when there's a king like this? I know you don't fully understand him. Neither do the Magi. Neither do I or anybody else. But we can get enough of a picture to realize he's the king that we should worship. I know bowing down to a one-year-old seems crazy. He's the king, though. Let us, like foolish men, bow down to the child who is king. I love you guys. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being king. God, for being the ruler over all the nations, the one who created the stars, the one who descended into our midst to die on a cross that we may know you. God, I pray that if we do know you today, if we have confessed you as king, that, Lord, you would begin to show us what ways can we worship you. We want, I want to worship you, Jesus. I want to give myself of you. Lord, you gave yourself for me. I thank you for that. Lord, let the overflow of that emotion and conviction and challenge, let that drive toward our worship, toward our offering of you. Lord, even right now, even in the songs that we sing, Lord, I know sometimes we... Uh, feel ashamed of maybe looking foolish before someone else, but we want to sing, Lord, let that be an offering to you. Even right now, Lord, let us love the least of these. Let us share the gospel, even when it kind of makes us look foolish at times. Let us make much of you, for you have made little of yourself that you may make much of us, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you for drawing us in. And Lord, I pray that for the men and women in this room who may be wrestling with who you are, I pray very boldly that even right now, they would give their life to you. They would submit to you as the king. And friends, I would encourage you, if this is you, if the Holy Spirit's working on your heart, Jesus has made it really simple. In humility, you say, God, I need you. And he's yours forever. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for that. We love you, Christ. I pray these things in your very beautiful name. Amen. Amen.